I couldn't help but chuckle a little bit as our youth minister here at the Antioch campus, Zach Wiggins, came and began to expound about how old he felt, um, given the fact that he's a few months younger than my oldest, and he was introducing someone he said was a freshman when he met her, and I thought, well, she was in diapers and learning to walk when I met her, and so maybe I've never felt older in my life than I do right now. But uh, we're so thankful for what is going on in our student ministry and Zach's leadership. Abigail's obviously the youngest, the daughter of Jonathan Locke. He continues to recover, and we look forward to having him back very, very soon. I got to see him this week for the first time, and uh, he's, he's really doing very, very well. Uh, he, he's kind of limited how long he can sit. Uh, it starts to hurt, and he has to get up and move around. So, as soon as he can uh, kind of get to a, a stasis with all of his pain management, we'll start seeing him back again. But he's doing really, really well. We lived in Tennessee for the first nine and a half years of our ten and a half years of marriage at that time, and it was the first time that Julie and I had ever been separated from our family and, and friends by distance. We were just kids at the time. I was 24 when we moved to Tennessee. Julie was 21, and we were terribly, terribly homesick by the end of our first year. And I'll never forget having lunch with my friend and co-worker, Chuck Essery, and telling him how homesick I was and how anxious Julie and I were to be able to, to go back to our home in Oklahoma uh, the following Monday, and he asked why I wasn't leaving uh, after church on, on Sunday morning. Well, this was the early 90s, and church was still an all-day affair, so I didn't think I could leave any earlier. And God bless Chuck, he told me to skip it, and he'd cover it with my pastor, who happened to be Pastor Micah's father. And he did that, and uh, Julie and I were just about as happy as we had ever been when we got into our car and pointed it west right after church on that May Sunday morning, and we started heading home. And for years, going west for us meant going home. If you would please find Leviticus 16 in your copy of God's Word. We're going to be in some other spots before we get there, but that's where we'll spend the bulk of our time, and I would encourage you to go ahead and find that. The most sacred day on the Jewish calendar is the Day of Atonement, and it is the subject of Leviticus 16. It's the throbbing heartbeat of the Jewish religion and the epicenter of the first five books of the Old Testament, which if you'll remember from our journey through Exodus, function essentially as five different chapters of the same book. And I'm not overstating things when I say that this chapter is the most important chapter of those first five books of the Bible, and one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible, and in a way probably lost on us right now, the theme of it is going home. Uh, to see how, we're, we're going to have to go back to the beginning, and, and not the very beginning when God said, and it was, and it was very good. I'm talking about the beginning when everything began to completely unravel, when mankind sinned and was placed under sin's curse and was banished from the Garden of Eden. Here's what was recorded of that event in Genesis 3, beginning in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. 
Now lest he stretch out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Mankind was banished to the east of Eden. And to be east of Eden, metaphorically, came to represent living in a fallen world long before Steinbeck's novel. It was, in fact, the default metaphor for the Jewish people to understand, in a physical way, their separation from God. It's never explicitly stated that way in Scripture, but if you pay close attention, you'll see it. And God Himself is the one who gave that metaphor its legs. Back in June, we learned about the tabernacle that God commanded the Jews to construct and what it taught us about God, that He was personal, that He was providential, and that He was particular, and how people seek a relationship with Him and how He seeks a relationship with His people. But we didn't talk about one very important aspect of the tabernacle on that day back in June. We didn't talk about how it was situated. We didn't talk about its orientation. All sides of the court encircling the tabernacle, north, south, east and west, were totally enclosed. But I want you to listen to the description of the east side as I read in Exodus 27, verses 13 through 16. There we're told that the breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate, meaning there's a gate there, shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. On the other side of the gate, the hanging shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three bases. For the gate of the court there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. Now, that's something, honestly, it's easy to just blow right past. But the gate... The entrance to the tabernacle was on the east side, and the entire complex was oriented then facing that way. As you moved west through the gate, you first encountered the altar of sacrifice and then the basin for washing, then the entrance to the outer portion of the tabernacle itself where only the priest could enter, and then the entrance to the westernmost part of the complex, the Holy of Holies, which only the high priest could enter into once a year on the Day of Atonement. God arranged His temple so that as people moved west, they got closer to Him and home. And, and no other day unpacks the journey of going home to God more explicitly and beautifully than the Day of Atonement instituted in Leviticus 16. The instruction for the day begins with the reference to the, 
the death of Aaron's two sons for acting in a careless and cavalier way in the performance of their priestly duties. Scrupulously following God's commands was always important for God's priest, and the death of the two sons proved that. But for Aaron and the high priest afterwards to enter the westernmost part of the Jewish theological compass where God resided once a year required the utmost care. And in His grace, God reminds Aaron of this through Moses in uh, Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2. He says, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. And the rest of the chapter will go on to explain the elaborate rites and rituals for the Day of Atonement. The first uh, of these rituals are the rites of entrance, those things that must be done by the high priest as he prepares to enter the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And we see those rites begin in verse 3, where it says, but in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and he shall have the linen undergarment on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for Azazel. And you'll see a note if you're reading from your copy of God's Word there that'll drop you down to a footnote essentially that will tell you we really don't know what Azazel means, but it came to mean something that we do know term-wise, scapegoat, the scapegoat. Verse 9, and Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering, but the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel or the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that he may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Now again, there's a lot there, things that we could easily blow through, and we'll fill in some of the blanks as we go through this this morning, but the entrance rite can be summarized in this way. Aaron is to bathe in preparation for donning the priestly garments, and then he is to select the animals that will be used in the sacrifices that will follow. Those are the rites of entrance. And then what follows are the rites of cleansing. They start with the high priest offering the bull that he selected in the entrance rites as a sin offering for himself, because he's a sinner, and his household. And with his sin immediately atoned for by the sacrifice. He takes a censure full of, of coals from the altar of sacrifice and places two handfuls of incense using the recipe given for that incense in Exodus 30, essentially creating a smoky shield between him and the Lord, keeping him from seeing the glory of God hovering above the ark. And then he does this in verse 14 of Leviticus uh, 16. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull 
and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side, and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Now, let's get our bearings literally. He is told to sprinkle the blood on the ark in an eastward direction. And in the verses that follow, as he continues to move eastward out into the courtyard, he is to sprinkle blood on the altar, cleansing the ark and the altar from the stain of Israel's sin. So let's make sure that we grasp what this pictures. It pictures God moving to the east toward a fallen world with forgiveness obtained through sacrifice. Through sacrificial cleansing, the east-west divide between God and man is removed. Those are the rites of cleansing. And then we come to the rite of elimination using a live goat, the scapegoat, which I mentioned earlier. Remember, during the rites of entrance, as the high priest selects these two goats, one goat selected by God through the casting of lots was to be used in a blood sacrifice as the rite of cleansing. But the remaining goat is to be used in this way. Look at verse 20 of Leviticus 16. And when he has made an end for atoning for the holy place in the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall be let and he shall let the goat free in the wilderness. So the goat is released to the east and away from God, casting the sins of the people of Israel into the wilderness. And with that Israel has come home to God because God has moved towards them and made His home among them. Now, I promise you that I have not squeezed meaning here out of my very vivid imagination. What I have shared with you is the consensus opinion on what's happening on the Day of Atonement. And it shouldn't surprise us because the narrative movement on the Day of Atonement of God moving towards a fallen humanity to make His home among them is actually the story arc of the entire Bible. As we have already seen, Scripture begins with mankind being cast out to the east of Eden, away from God and away from the tree of life. The story of Scripture ends in Revelation 21.3 with a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. and They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. Along with this key detail of heaven given in Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit 
in each month. Do you see it? Scripture begins with separation from God and the tree of life. And it ends with reunion with God and access to the tree of life. That's essentially what the Day of Atonement is is picturing, but it's actually more precise than that. Its focus is on God's movement from the West toward mankind by way of sacrifice. And so if the epicenter of the first five books of the Bible is Leviticus 16, then the epicenter of the entire Bible is in what the Day of Atonement depicts at its core, the life and work of Jesus Christ. Again, that connection isn't the product of my vivid imagination. It's the conclusion that the New Testament writers make about the Day of Atonement. In fact, the Day of Atonement serves as a a, a canvas upon which the, the author of Hebrews paints his picture of Christ, comparing him to the high priest on the Day of Atonement in Hebrews 9. I want you to follow along on the screens uh, as I read Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The anonymous author of Hebrews is telling us that Christ fulfilled in His flesh what the Day of Atonement pictured. He is at once the high priest and the sacrifice, entering into the heavenly temple, uh, of which the, the Jewish tabernacle was a poor copy, and into the very presence of God, having removed the stain and separation from sin, allowing those of us who still live east of Eden to look for God to come and dwell with us again through Jesus Christ. By way of summary, let me rejoice with you in what the Day of Atonement pictures Christ having done for us. First, it shows us that in Christ alone, we are returned. Remember, the ark of Scripture is mankind's fellowship with God being violently obliterated because of our sin. And Jesus is the one who returns us to God's presence and home where we belong. As our high priest, Jesus comes into the presence of God on our behalf for the purpose of returning us to God and our rightful place with Him. The earthly high priest on the Day of Atonement could only picture this because as as soon as the ceremony was completed, the fallenness of mankind began to defile the holy places immediately, and the entire cycle of, of man's eastward banishment and God's western distance 
began again until the Day of Atonement rolled around. But in Jesus, the cycle ends, and mankind is able to return to his proper relationship and orientation to a holy and sinless God. In Christ alone, we are returned to that place. And in Christ alone, we are redeemed. Remember with me where the high priest started his cleansing work in the Holy of Holies. He started it on the west side of the ark facing the east. And, and there he continually moves eastward until the cleansing from sin is complete. And remember that I said this was meant to picture a reversal of the curse of sin. And remember that it was accomplished by means of blood. And then remember with me the words of Hebrews 9.12. He entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. I said a moment ago, that the whole dramatic cycle of the Day of Atonement started over immediately after these rites were over and rituals were concluded. And I want you to listen how God Himself says it must continue at the end of Leviticus 16. In verse 34, it, we read these words. It says, if I can get there, it says this. And He shall... And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. It was required year after year after year after year. But with Christ, the redemption from sin isn't momentary. The offer of Hebrews says it's eternal. Christ alone has the ability to secure for us that kind of redemption. And finally, the Day of Atonement pictures for us that in Christ alone we are restored. Restored to our sinless state before God. The high priest laid his hands on the scapegoat, and the goat was released into the wilderness, and our tendency is to forget that it was one of a pair. And so we tend to treat the animals separately, whereas the instruction in Leviticus treats them as one sacrifice. Listen again as I read from Leviticus 16, 5. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. Did you catch that? The two goats together are referred to as one sin offering. That's because in order to fully grasp the full scope of our restoration, sin would have to be paid for by the blood of one of the goats and removed, carried away by the other. Together, picturing the cost and accomplishment of forgiveness. And the New Testament writers saw Christ accomplishing both. Peter in 1 Peter 2:24 says, "He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed." So 
So Christ is literally the goat, the greatest offering of all time because He fully paid the price of sin and He fully removed from us the stain of sin and restored us to our factory settings before God. Now, folks, I want you to stop and think of the journey we've been on this morning. We've seen the heart of God in a passage of Scripture that many of us find strange and inaccessible. And yet, in the simplicity of just the movement from west to east, from God's presence to fallen humanity, we've seen God's heart for fellowship with us. We've also seen the horrific offense of our sin to simply picture what is required, to illustrate what is required to remove the penalty and stain of sin. Three animals were slaughtered and four lost their lives. If you follow the logical conclusion of turning loose a domesticated goat out in the wilderness, to picture redemption, to illustrate what it meant to remove the offense of sin, four animals in one ceremony lost their lives. And yet we've learned through the writers of the New Testament that to accomplish our full and complete redemption from sin, God in Christ had to spill His own blood. And with that great price paid, we can be fully forgiven and redeemed. And we've seen that because Christ bore our sins in His body, we're free from the guilt of it forever and ever. We never again, when we are in Christ, have to look over our shoulder and see if God is coming after us to seek revenge on us. We bear our sins no more because Christ bore them all. Now, what is the only appropriate response to that kind of ridiculously good news? Well, that depends on where you are this morning. There are some here who just tragically don't get it. You're approaching two decades, if you've been here my entire time as your pastor, two decades of hearing me proclaim from Scripture over and over again that salvation in Christ isn't about what you have done or can do, but in what He has done, and that you only need to admit your utter inability to make yourself worthy to God in order to experience the salvation that He alone can make possible. Some of you have heard me proclaim that for over 16 years. And if you're old enough, you've heard other preachers say it before me, and you still don't get it. I know that you don't get it. By the legalistic standards you impose on yourself and others, standards that that you claim are just you trying to be obedient, but are really you trying to show God and everyone else that you are worthy of God. I know that, that you don't get it by the shame that some of you still carry around. I've, I've been pastor of Blue Valley long enough to know the sin history of people in every section of our worship center this morning. And some of you 
just will not believe that God doesn't want to still exact some kind of price from you for that sin. And some of you sinned against will not release from the penalty of sin the, uh, the, the, the repentant person who has hurt you. I know that some of you don't get it because of the deadness in your eyes on Sunday morning, just going through the motions and checking the box, hoping that an hour Sunday is going to be enough for God. Enough of that already. God has come from the West to redeem you. Jesus paid all the price to redeem you and paid all the price to remove the sin that far too many of us still try to bear. And for those in that camp today, the only possible and appropriate response to what we've learned this morning is to finally lay down your pride. That's what it is. And your shame and fall on the grace that alone can save us. And if you can do that, then you can join with the rest of us here this morning, those of us for whom today has simply been a reminder of what God has done for us in Christ and respond in the only possible way that you can respond with absolute and complete joy. And my prayer is that we will enter into that joy together right now.